0: If you're visiting with us, I want to welcome you to our final Sunday in the book of 1 Peter. And we have been in this book for five months since the very beginning of January, believe it or not. And we're going to turn after this to three or four weeks in the book of Psalms. Then we're going to look at the prophet Jonah. And then starting in the fall, we're going to jump into the book of Acts and see God's Holy Spirit at work in the early church church. Uh, showing us what it looks like to see Jesus continuing to work among us through His Spirit. I'm excited about that. But let me ask you this question before we read the text together. Meditate a little bit. Have you been singing the song of 1 Peter over the last five months? I'm imagining you have. I know we've not always been together. You've been at home listening. But have you been singing the song? And if you, if you have... Which lyrics stand out to you? Because we're all different people and we receive things uniquely because this song is about hope. Maybe you've been singing about hope. It's a song that's deeply honest about suffering, about us not fitting in this world, about this not feeling like a home to us. Something's wrong here. And our culture is longing for a better home, are we not? Do we not see it far from here, near to here? Just the brokenness, the pain... This can't be home. Something wrong about it. Do you feel like a sojourner? Peter writes his letter to sojourners. Um, It's a song that's comprehensively wide and deep about the sovereign work of God, and it's just been a joy to be in it. But maybe you remember back to January, I think it was January 5th, our first Sunday in this text, I gave a description of three words that might be the melody of the song of this letter. They were these three words, grace in exile. And if we, look, we looked that Sunday at the first of the book, the end of the book, and all the parts in between, and we said, Peter's going to touch a lot of things very deeply, but if we summarize the song of this letter that should be singing in our head over and over, it's grace in exile. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, that by God's free grace, we have an imperishable hope that holds us in a world that is not our home as we sojourn through it, anticipating an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. That's Peter's message to us. And to this end, while we've been in our own version of quarantine and exile away from each other, we've had testimonies we've shared. I'm very, very thankful for those who've courageously shared their testimonies, but we have wanted you to hear people say, I'm being held by the God of all grace While I'm not with you, but I'm being held uniquely in every testimony you listen to, if you watch them, we're just a little bit different in ways in which God's word has been sufficient in holding us. But let me ask you now, how are you doing in your time of exile? Do you feel over the five months we've been in this book that you have been held by God's Holy Spirit? You're starting to interpret the things around you with the confidence that you should And you've seen God grow a hope in you that's not something you have the power to create or put inside of you, but by God's grace, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. How are you doing in your relational trials, in the complexities of this world? I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you're standing firm, but I want us to on this very last Sunday in this book, kind of weigh the message of the book and overlay it on top of our lives. And I hope and pray that you'll be interpreting your life in light of the whole book's message this morning. So stand with me, and we're going to read the very final part of this letter. It's the customary greeting that Peter writes to the church as he concludes his letter. This is God's word for us. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God. God. Father, help us now. Would you apply the full scope of this letter Today, by your Spirit's help, onto our lives that we would be equipped, even in the day and week to come. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So Peter says, "This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it." Let me ask you, what does it mean to stand firm? Um, while I dance between swearing off social media and not and using it to connect with old friends and sometimes reading news posts, I have to confess every once in a while, something will pop into my feet and I'll I'll be entertained by something that is just foolish. Here's one. Have you seen these Russian slapping contests? Have you seen this? Where competitors will stand across from each other with a judge standing between them. They'll put white like gymnastics dust on their hands so they can judge exactly where the slap hits the face. And two individuals would just stand there and not flinch and take another man's slap. They're like weight divisions for this and everything because it wouldn't be fair for me to go against like a Clydesdale or something, right? But you're sitting there and the man, I mean, he will just get his back, his arm into it and it's not a punch, it's just a slap and just wham! And the other man just stands there and takes it. And just kind of brushes himself off and it's his turn. And the other man stands there and they just, they just stand firm and take it. And at some point there's a victor declared when someone taps out like I can't take or falls over. Or whatever the case may be. Slapping contest. Just stand firm and take it. So we know what it is to stand firm. A little less com- comical or painful or at least more serious. Do you recall the house on Mexico Beach in Florida when Hurricane Matthew hit? After the whole beach was just decimated, there was this white, beautiful house, double-decker porch, standing as if a hurricane hadn't happened. Everything else around it was just destroyed, and it stood firm. Articles were written about the engineers who developed the house and how much more expensive it was than a typical house, and it was just a fascinating scene. That house stood firm. Peter's message to us is stand firm. We should know what it means to stand firm. It means to not be moved, to not be knocked off the foundation. Let's be particular in life. Stand firm in your forgiven status and righteous in God's sight, even though you know how guilty you are. Even though you know what goes on inside your head, even though you know about your past, maybe your present, things that you wouldn't even speak in the hearing of others, you know they're true about you. The accuser tries to remind you of how filthy you are, how unloving you are to God. Stand firm in a status of perfect righteousness because you're forgiven in Christ. Or maybe you know the heartache and the trial and the pain of depression. What does it mean to stand firm in the fact that God has caused to be born again a living hope even for you who don't know why it comes upon you but the malaise, the brokenness, the pain, the joylessness that depression physiologically robs of so many people that I've known and loved and I'm sure you have as well. What does it mean to stand firm and not think that you're the one exception that doesn't get to know and taste and feel hope? Or how about standing firm in the mandate and the possibility of reconciliation between people that are broken. Where every part of you doesn't want to be reconciled because of the way someone else has treated you, but the scriptures say that by, because of the gospel, we can be reconciled to God, so therefore we can know reconciliation with one another. We can forgive other people's sin against us. We can bear the pain of that because we put the pain of our sin on Jesus, and we can put the pain of their sin on Jesus, and reconciliation is possible, and we can stand firm in it. Or what does it mean to to believe that you can stand firm with the onslaught of sin and temptation in this world? Where your flesh prompts you to long and lust after maybe things related to beauty or sexuality or the greed and coveting what somebody else has or standing firm when all I want to do is lash out in anger at someone who's wronged me but I can stand firm because there is no power of sin over me as we looked at last week, I can resist the enemy because I've been given the power of the resurrected Christ in me. Peter ends his letter and I think of a slapping contest. I think of someone who doesn't get knocked off the foundation of their own two feet. I think of a hurricane and then I think of all the things in life that sometimes feel like they're going to sink you and me. And the Bible says, stand firm. This is the true grace of God. It will hold you. How do we stand firm? I'm actually going to do this this morning. I'm going to give you three points to an outline to a sermon, and I'm going to do it in like three minutes, four minutes, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of the book, and I'm going to ask you to stand firm in a lot of the things Peter has said to us over the course of the last five months. If you are at Cindy Perkins' funeral yesterday, Maybe I just wasn't very creative this week. I'm going to do the same sort of thing as I did yesterday. For those of you that know, and the flowers are so beautiful, um, Cindy Perkins, who was the previous pastor before me, uh, his wife passed away of her battle of cancer. And I was asked to do the homily for the funeral, and so what I did yesterday is I know Cindy's been listening online to our messages over the four years that she's not been here. So I went through every book of the Bible that I've preached since I've been the pastor here that I know she was listening to, and just tried like, like I had a, a machine gun of truth just to say, this is what Cindy heard and believed, and heard and believed, and now knows to be true, and heard and believed. I'm going to do the same thing this morning in First Peter. I want to go back to the beginning and say, stand firm in it, stand firm in it, stand firm in it, because that's how Peter chooses to end this letter. But before we rehearse all those exhortations from Peter, let me say this. How do we stand firm? Three things. First, we stand firm by knowing who we are and where we are. You got to know who you are and you got to know where you are. You are a sojourner and this is not your home. That's how Peter starts the book. You gotta know this is not your home. You gotta know that you're a wanderer and you are eager for God to make this place home. You gotta know that because you have an enemy that wants you to think that this is your home. All the broken parts of it, a lot of the messed up definitions of it, he wants us to cozy up to those things and call them the good life and call it home. And the Bible has started this letter to us by saying, You're a sojourner. This is not your home. But you're an elect sojourner. So that's the other thing you got to know. Got to know who you are. You are chosen of God. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the earth, he put his affection on those who are his. You got to know that you're wandering and this isn't your home, but you've been chosen to feel like it's not your home because your God of grace has put his love and affection on you. You got to know who you are. You also got to know that you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. If you have an inheritance, then who are you? A son or a daughter. That's who an inheritance is kept for. So you got to know that you're a sojourner who's elect. That's a son or daughter of God. And then you got to know that you're a sheep. You got to know that you wander. You got to know that there's a shepherd who who knows you and your tendency. And he lays his life down for the sheep. So that's kind of the first point. You got to know who you are. And Peter uses different descriptions. Sojourner, elect, son or daughter, sheep. You got to know who you are if you're going to be able to stand firm in this world. Secondarily, you got to know the gospel. What is the gospel if we summarize the whole story? The gospel is is the story of Jesus being the elect exile who left home, who left the eternal affection of his father and came down to wander among us. He was tempted as we are, but he was without sin. He suffered once for sin that we would be done with it. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter writes to us. You got to know that the whole story is actually about him being the elect sojourner that came down. And now, after his death and his resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he sits speaking into his Father's ear. Interceding for us as we are kept for the inheritance that is awaiting us in glory you got to know the gospel. It's the story of Jesus, the elect exile, for you. And then third and finally, you got to know what grace is to be able to stand firm in this world. Grace is this. Grace is that your rescue and your hope is totally rooted in God's work, not your own. you got to know that you got to know that his grace is full, it's undeserved, it's free, it's irresistible. That's how he starts the whole letter. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. He gives life, he gives hope, he causes it. All the way unto an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being kept for it. Peter starts his letter to you and I, and he says this, it's all God's work, that's what grace is. God's mercy, God's causing life, God's giving an inheritance, God's keeping you, and at the end of the letter, it's no wonder he describes the one we worship as the God of all grace. So those are the three points this morning. How do you stand firm? You got to know who you are. You got to know the story of the gospel and you got to know that it's all by grace. Have those things held you? Are they holding you now so that you can stand firm in whatever it is that you're walking through? This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So this is a typical like epistolary conclusion. It's Peter sends greetings. He mentions John Mark who was a leader in the early church. I find it to be fascinating that he mentions a nameless woman from Babylon. I just want you to notice how the Bible fits together. He ends the book with an individual example of the way he starts the book. He says at the beginning of the book, I'm Peter and I'm writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. Christians who've been scattered everywhere by God's design that are chosen by God but feel like it's not at home. And then he closes the book and he says, a woman... An individual from Babylon, her place of exile. Oh, by the way, she's also chosen. She sends her greetings. Peace to you. It's exactly the same as the beginning of the book. I did a devotion for RUF's, I guess I have an Instagram devotion floating around the world now. I've never really done that before, but um, our RUF minister came this week and recorded me doing a devotion. And that's what I share with the college students. You're you're like this nameless person that Peter mentions at the end of his letter. She was in exile in Babylon. She was chosen. We know nothing about her. You may feel like you're just out in your little corner of the world. Your semester ended. You're kind of placeless. You're like an individual who has to believe all the promises of the gospel for you to stand firm. I love that Peter ends his letter this way. He says, I write to you by Sylvanus, a faithful brother. Um, Just so you're aware, Silvanus is the Latinized form of the Greek name Silas. So you have Silas as one of the leaders in the early church. Acts 15, he was there, probably being the one through whom Peter wrote this letter. And we mentioned it back in January, but the Greek in this letter is actually still studied by seminarians as one of the most beautiful letters written in its style of Greek. So much so, causing those who are skeptics of the inerrancy and the authority of God's word to say, there's no way that a fisherman wrote 1 Peter. There's no way he could have used such eloquent and beautiful Greek. Well, yeah, there's a way. He actually tells us that by Silvanus I've written this. Silas would have been a Roman citizen. So you have this beautiful letter delivered by, and maybe even written by, in partnership with Silas, who, by the way, also helped Paul write First and 2 Thessalonians. And he says I've written briefly to you and here's what I've tried to say. I've tried to exhort and declare to you the true grace of God. Now think with me those two words that he uses to describe the whole letter. Exhorting and declaring. In the first service I had all eight of my seven of my family members sitting right here. And I said, you know, in our home there is a difference when dad is exhorting and declaring and when dad is just suggesting. Or, or even worse, when dad is sinfully complaining, right, or when, when dad is just mumbling, if I call all my children to the living room and I say, guys, I need you to please hear this. I'm about to leave to go to a meeting or something. I would like for this to happen and how you respect and honor your mother. That is not a suggestion. That is an exhortation. And in our home, at least, I expect children to receive an exhortation as an exhortation. In fact, so much so that when I return from wherever I've been, the first thing I'm going to do is check in with their mother to see, did they heed the exhortation? And then I won't tell you what happens after that. An exhortation is a very strong word that's expected to be heard and heeded. Peter ends his letter and he tells us that he's not just emoting because he loved Jesus so much. He's been exhorting us through this whole letter. And then he summarizes the letter Stand firm in the grace of God. So we're going to do that now. I grew up in Colorado. Some of you know that. I am able to talk super fast and feel like it's slow. I will try not to do so, but I want to fly through this because each of you, in different ways, need to be reminded of what we've looked at over the last five months. You might need to be confronted by it. It won't knock you over, but it may need to feel like a slapping contest. Hear the exhortations of Peter. So if we go all the way back to chapter 1, I've already mentioned it, but let me exhort you to believe right now that you are an exile, a sojourner, a wanderer, chosen by God, and he has ordained every part of the journey you're on. There is not a part of what you are going through that he didn't foreknow. That's how Peter starts the letter. We have all had our lives foreknown by God for the sanctification in Christ and for washing with his blood. So our rescue, our conformity to the holiness of Jesus, and where each of us have traversed life. This morning, there was a, a, a second time visitor in our first service, and they said, you mentioned Colorado. Colorado. Tell me about your childhood, because I grew up in Colorado. We lived there in Boulder, yada, yada. And just in a moment, I walk through my little narrative. Every step of the way has been a wandering by God's sovereign design. You and I need the Scripture's exhortation to believe that. Stand firm in it. Your life has been ordained by God and you're a wanderer. This is not your home, but he also ordained for your rescue and your status as his elect, his chosen, his child that he won't let go. You are a son or daughter of God with an inheritance that's been guaranteed. It's kept in heaven for you. It's undefiled, unfading. It will last forever and ever and ever and ever. You need to be commanded from the word of God to take hold of that today. No matter what you feel like. And then he goes on, verse 3, And following, I've already read that, so I won't. But I want to call you and exhort you to believe that God has called you, if you are in Christ, to be born again. He's caused it. You had no capacity in your sin and flesh to create life in yourself, to believe the things of the Spirit, and to want to have your sins forgiven, and to want an eternity of righteousness. You would not want it apart from His work causing you to desire it. He gets all credit. It's super uncomfortable, but it's the way the Scriptures describe it. And if that is true, then let me try to carefully say this. If you wrestle with hopelessness, sorrow, pain, sometimes honestly believing that you are just left out of the promise of having hope while everybody else seems to get to know and taste a little bit of joy and hope, that's the assault of the enemy on you because you have been caused to be born again to a living hope. And you can know hope until you see him face to face. Until you know rescue from this broken world. You need to be told that. And you need to believe it. That's an exhortation. Stand firm in it. You're a son or daughter adopted of God. And there's an inheritance that cannot be taken from you by faith in Jesus. Stand firm in it. We'll continue. Chapter 1 verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here's what he's saying. In your mind, be prepared to battle against the flesh and against sin in this world. How do you do that? By setting your hope on the grace that is to be yours, that you're an undeserved, forgiven sinner. And the things that will destroy you that you and I have a tendency to still want, set on your mind that they're worthless compared to the affection God has put on you because of his love for you in Jesus. Set it in your mind. He spends a great deal of time both in chapter 1 again and chapter 2 telling us to stand firm in our mind. Chapter 2 verse 11, for example. We sojourn through this world of sin and this world that denies God's glory, but because of the Spirit in us, we've been exposed to God's glory revealed in Jesus. So we should think totally different about what is good, about what is beautiful, about what is desirable than a person who's not believed that God's glory has been revealed in the earth as it has in Christ. So much so that Peter says, others should ask you why you think so differently. Because you do think differently. You don't think this is the end all be all. You're not okay with the injustice and sorrow and pain in the world, but you're not thinking that it's never going to end because it will. Justice will reign through Jesus. So you think differently. And you're going to experience the blessing of justice and righteousness coming, and it's not by anything you've done because you're setting your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns. So set your mind on the guaranteed future to battle against the flesh and the passions that tell you to try to make the good life now. Stand firm in your mind, in the battles you face in the flesh. Chapter 1, verse 22. You've been made pure for Jesus for a purpose. Chapter 1, verse 22. That purpose is for a sincere, brotherly love. So here's what Peter said to us. You've received grace. You have hope. You have life. You've received affection you didn't deserve. So earnestly give that same love to others even if they don't deserve it. Love one another earnestly. Be conduits of the grace you've received. Share the hope that you have with those who feel hopeless. Be interruptible. Love each other deeply and earnestly. Stand firm for each other. Sojourn together In the church, there should be no isolation or objectification of people or fearing one another or using one another. It should be just a whole lot of love for each other, grieving with each other, rejoicing with each other, as different as we all are. Probably my favorite part of the letter starts in verse 23 of chapter 1. Peter says, You're born again. How are you born again? Through the imperishable seed of the Word of God that's been planted in you. It's living, it's abiding. And I still recall the special Sunday standing before you before we were all separated. And just thinking through how slow many of our sanctification is compared to the way we may want. If you are in Christ and you have His Spirit in you, then you have His Word planted in you. And guess what an imperishable Word never stops doing? Growing. Our sister, Julia Slemp, came up to me after the first service. She's older than I am. And she said, I may be bones and flesh that's aging on the outside, but you know, verse 23 tells me I am growing increasingly green on the inside. If you are in Christ, you have a word that's been planted in you, and it will never, ever, ever, ever stop growing. That's what imperishable means. I think it's some of the best news in all of the Bible. I think of the the men walking on the road to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified. Remember those guys? They're walking and they're kicking the sand and they're just upset because life's not gone the way they thought. They thought Jesus was going to be the one. They're very sad. They're downtrodden. And Jesus walks up beside them. And he says, oh foolish ones, you're so slow to believe all that's been taught in the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then he goes on to explain from scripture how all of it pointed to him. And their hearts start to burn on the inside. What he does is he takes them to the scriptures and shows them that they have no reason to be hopeless. That's what Peter's saying here. There's no reason to be hopeless in spite of all the noise and all the inputs of different Facts that we are given by the media right now? I hope and I pray, Christian, that the Word of God is your filter for all the other information that is thrown at us at an increasing rate and an increasingly questionable rate. Oh, listen, Christian, the Spirit of God works through His Word. His, the seed of His Word is in you if you are in Christ. And here's what Peter's saying. You must be in the Word if you are to stand firm. Work at it. It's not easy. I, I praise God that some of my daughters, two high school daughters, friends are saying, I've been in the church, but I'm not that equipped to understand his word. Can we figure out how to read it together? But then I'm also alerted when high school kids who've grown up in the church say, I can't understand it. It's so hard to understand. Folks, by the Holy Spirit's power, the word of God is clear. It's complex at times. But it's clear so that babes can understand it. I hope and I pray that this is a church that is turning to God's word, as Pastor Bill said a moment ago, because it's all that's gonna hold us as we wait for home to be home. I I don't want to digress. So, chapter two, I'll keep going. Chapter two, verses nine and ten. Peter says that we who once were not a people are now a people. We're a race, a priesthood, a holy nation, and we have been given a purpose. What is our purpose? Receive this exhortation. Your and my purpose as the people of God is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's loved us by His grace. Your life is a proclamation of what you believe, and you are not alone. I hope and I pray that you have experienced, even in our time of quarantine, the centrality of being a part of the people of God. We should not, as a church, we're trying to be accessible to you, and I know there's a lot of people online but we should not have to work super hard to make the church feel connected when we've been told because of a virus that we have to separate. Do you realize that? We should find that those who are in Christ say, I have been made a part of a people and my definition of where I fit in this world is connected to the people of God. There is no other stronger definition, not where I work, not the street I live on, not the school I go to. My defining reality is a part of Being the people of God with others who've been rescued in Christ. Receive that exhortation. Stand firm in it. You're a part of the people of God that he's set apart for his own possession. Then there's this long section in the book that I will not rehearse, but I'll summarize. Starting in chapter 2, verse 13. He goes through the different roles that we all have in life. He starts by being citizens underneath authorities that God's put over us. And man, we should have our hearts break right now as citizens of the United States of America. We should absolutely break for other cities where we are not, where systems have gone wrong, but we're still called to live under those systems as those who submit to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we should do so with broken hearts that pray and love and serve, but make no mistake, we're called to be citizens. It's a role we've been given by God. And then he goes to different roles. He said, you may have a role of servant to a master, employee to an employer, student to a teacher, or you may have the role of of wife to husband or husband to wife. But then he goes forward and says, all of you in all of your roles have unity of mind and be humble. Submit to God's design. You've been given roles to fulfill. And your role is not necessarily going to be the role you wanted, and it's also not necessarily going to be the role of the person sitting next to you. So be wary that we don't live our lives evaluating how other people fill the role that we have or evaluating why someone else had a role that we want. We're called to steward the grace of God that's been given to us and proclaim His excellencies in the role He's put us while He's put us there. Stand firm in wherever God's positioned you right now for the purpose of declaring His excellencies. Yeah, but what about when I suffer, we may think. What about when my role is unjust and it's unfair and it's hard? This letter has said a lot to us about suffering, has it not? And I won't read all the places it has. But I could point you to chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And let me just summarize it this way. In your suffering, stand firm in the truth that Jesus suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. And you are suffering with him, but you're not suffering the extent of the sin that you should have to suffer for. He took that curse for you. But suffering will come. And Peter says, rejoice when it comes. It should break our heart. And it's happened in churches I've pastored that people take a short-term or maybe a long-term walk away from the gospel because of suffering in their life. Because they can't put the pieces together as to why God would let them go through this sort of suffering. Please listen. At our church, and we're going to go into Psalms of Lament next a little bit, we believe that suffering doesn't discredit the love of God shown to us in Christ. We believe that suffering should catalyze our faith in the God who came and suffered for us. If anything, it's much harder to walk after God in the gospel and to long for a home that this one isn't. It's a lot easier to do that in suffering than when you don't have suffering. Christian, in your suffering, see Jesus who suffered for you. Just a few more sections. Let me point you to it. Paul continues, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. In your suffering, you need to know something. You are called to steward God's varied grace wherever he's put you, however he's made you. In the first service, I pointed to Clinton. I won't point to him this time, but I'll just reference him. I'm going to point to Pastor Bill. Pastor Bill's been with us now for more than a year. Has God ever made two pastors so different? And I love it. I'm so thankful for it. Brothers and sisters, you've been given God's grace, and he says very clearly that it's varied grace. So if you serve, serve with strength that God provides. If you speak, speak the oracles of God, but speak as you, serve as you, because God's made you, you. Wherever you suffer and wherever you sojourn, be a steward of the gift God's given you. These are the days to steward the telos, the completion of all things is almost at hand. So give your life away as Jesus stewarded his life for you. Last two sections, and now I'm just going to close. Peter says that we are to stand firm while anticipating judgment. We looked at this like two weeks ago. Anticipating judgment. Remember what Peter says? That if you are in Christ, you're on the inside on judgment day, not on the outside. If you're on the inside, then judgment is when you find purity. Purity. Full and final purity. If you're outside of Christ, judgment is separation from God forever and ever. And it's wrath. But if you are in Christ, stand firm. The judgment day is coming. And on that day, righteousness will be full for those who profess faith in Jesus. That's chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. And folks, we live in a world that needs to know that we believe there's a God of justice and he will bring his justice to bear in all situations of injustice. And we pray to that end. Peter closes his letter in chapter five and he says, stand firm in the church. He says, stand firm in the local church where God's led you to sojourn by grace. He has words for shepherds and there are elders in this room And it was a joy two weeks ago to preach a sermon to elders because that's how this letter speaks to us. Shepherd the flock of God that's under your care. If you're an elder, that's an exhortation from the chief shepherd to shepherds. Stand firm in your calling. It's so easy to avoid the hard things when you're a pastor or an elder. But then to all of us in the church, Peter says we're all under the chief shepherd shepherd so we should stand firm by grace and that looks like humility and then last week AJ he preached on probably my one of the better better parts of the whole book and I was like man I got to give him one of the best texts but it was supposed to be Lena's graduation but I was able to sit under it and my favorite part of his message last week was when he talked about how humility looks like hurling our anxieties on the chief shepherd and my Bible says, cast your anxieties. And I think of me, I'm a, I don't know how to fish. I barely know how to cast. But it's not that fun and it's kind of boring. But when he said, hurl your anxieties, that's Jim Powell speak. I would say, vomit your anxieties, right? It's a visceral. What does it look like in humility for all of us to just throw our trial as we live in exile while we wait on righteousness on the chief shepherd who knows our pain? who knows our sin, who was tempted as we are, who conquered it. Peter says, stand firm by grace, by humbly throwing all your anxieties on the one who cares for you and by resisting the enemy. Peter tells sheep to resist the one who prowls around to destroy them. You have power to resist sin. Heed that exhortation. And then the way the letter ends, is the way that I'm going to end now and pray. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Stand firm under the dominion of Christ, no matter what happens to you this week. Stand firm knowing that because of God's election of you, you will stand before God and Jesus himself will confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you with him forever. I don't know what you're going through. That will hold. That's foundation enough for you to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, would we stand firm on the truths of this letter. Thank you for letting us rehearse it. Thank you for letting us be in it. Thank you that the one who gave it to us was a mess that we can so relate to. A mess that was transformed by you, Jesus, and he saw you in your incarnation. He saw you in your glorious resurrection and he shares this with us. He stood in it unto the end. Would we stand with Peter and finish well? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.